I'm a big fan of Jackson Brown's music and obviously uh, title was appropriate for what's going on in the world today is we are having serious energy problems and uh, it's actually not a it's not about availability it's about access and uh, we're just the world is kind of spinning off its axis a little bit right now but to give you a sense of how crazy a time it is uh, and trying to get insight into the mind of uh, Mr. Putin He's come up with a new idea for an, a new G8, which would consist of China, India, Russia, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, Iran, and Turkey, uh, because he sees the demise of the existing G8 uh, due to the uh, sanctions that they put on him as uh, put on Russia as ending the dominance of the current G8. So it just gives you a sense of where the world is today that, uh, you know, the alliances that are being talked about are kind of fascinating right now. Um, last week, I touched on some of the risks in the system from the World Bank. Uh, today, I want to focus on energy in particular um, as, it, as it relates to and the climate uh, change elements of it. Uh, two of the five big recommendations were around dealing with the near-term energy problem and also the transition to uh, low-carbon energy sources and having to move that up. I think the uh, conflict we've had is desire and ideology versus having a practical plan to make the transition. And I think that's what we're bumping up against right now. And then the war in the Ukraine has just put a further crimp in the, uh, in the whole system. So we have to deal with that. The OECD did an assessment of the cost of war and, and talked about the constraints of switching away from Russian energy markets you were raising earlier. And you can see that um, there isn't all that much spare capacity. Um, most times we think these numbers are somewhat uh, a little bit overstated or uh, not as practical in terms. But um, the LNG market is going to be tight for a while, and we need to make investments in this area to help this near-term problem. And I think there are opportunities to do that. We'll touch on that in a minute. But we have a green energy problem transition challenge overall. And, you know, these are, uh, this is a chart from the OECD that looks at transportation and it's the uh, critical materials for the energy transition in electric car versus a conventional car and what the resources required in the uh, power generation for other uh, kind of uh, energy sources. And you can see that there's a, a big need for copper a uh, big need for nickel and zinc and uh, some of the rare earths as well. One of the things that there's a note out in the journal today, that if you look at the top 10 miners right now, the top 10 miners are going to have CapEx of about $40 billion this year. That compares to $80 billion back in 2012. So we're under-investing in the areas that we need to be investing in to effect a transition to keep the cost down which is raising the cost. And we're seeing the same thing with energy companies as well, particularly the traditional fossil fuel companies. So we're actually in the process of trying to make a transition less cost effect, less costly. We're making it more costly in, in how we're doing it. And it's because we don't have the right policies, in my view, to do this or the right time horizon to affect it. And this chart just shows you that moving away is going to re from fossil fuels to green energy is going to require a lot of investment, but a lot of that's still going to be in fossil fuels for some time. And we need to look at bringing the two together rather than vilifying one and 
praising the other. We have to affect a transition where you're going to see these players be key parts of making this transition because they are among the most knowledgeable about the world energy issues to begin with. And you're also seeing some crossover. BP just announced a big acquisition last week of a hydrogen project in Australia where I think they're taking a 40% stake in it. These guys have the capital to invest in some of these green technologies rather than putting windfall taxes on, give them credits for investing in the green area might be one of the solutions. So we have to look at this differently. And and I think it's going to create a require a mindset change for how we're affecting the change. But last week, the American Petroleum Institute sent a letter to uh, President Biden with uh, their recommendations. Um, They believe now is the time for an energy awakening in the U.S., that the government has to come together with the fossil fuel industry to affect the change, to unlock the resources that we have. And as Bill highlighted a few minutes ago, under President Trump, we were really moving towards energy independence. Um, We can actually strengthen global energy security if we do this right. But what happened with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has contributed to what was already a problem of a mismatch of investment in in the existing infrastructure and an investment in the green transition. So we have to get better at that. We have a growing supply and demand imbalance. Demand is moving back to pre-pandemic levels. And when China gets past uh, their zero COVID policy and reopens, you're going to have another drain on the energy system. How are we going to handle that? And at the same time, we've had chronic underinvestment due to geopolitical issues or market forces. You know, the markets are telling investors that, um, that, for if you're a fossil fuel company, they want dividends and buybacks, not growth. They don't want to pay for future growth. Future growth's getting penalized. So we have a problem that's driving CapEx down and putting more return to shareholder capital issues. So the counter to that is we're going to put windfall taxes on these guys. We're going about this the wrong way. They're all short-term fixes for a longer-term problem that we have to get better at. And then you add to that the ESG movement, which is perfectly appropriate and well-intended, needs to be put in the context of where are we and where are we going and how do we get there, rather than just forcing it on the system without an appropriate guide path to get where we need to get to, or else we're just going to be floundering without a, without a real plan longer term. So the American Petroleum Institute gave their short-term solutions for uh, the recommendations now to try and get us back into a better pe- place with some elements of long-term. But these are not new issues, and they're highly controversial. So lifting development restrictions on federal lands and waters is to really open up uh, offshore drilling again and and, uh, land stakes there. Um, Designate critical uh, energy infrastructure projects. To me, this is one of the big themes that I've had, is we're trying to do too much all at once instead of doing the big things first and working our way through. If we want to get charging stations so that you can have electric vehicles all over, that should be a government project working with the private sector to create universal charging stations, not different ones for every company like we have with our iPhones and uh, and Android phones where you need different uh, chargers for everything. We need to come up with standards that can be used so that we can affect the change more more efficiently. We need to fix the permitting process because we make things too difficult. And if we keep changing the rules and and drag permitting out for multiple years, it's hard to get companies to make the investments that we want them to make. We have to get the applications put through the system faster so that we can uh, get our exports going and become a a help to Europe when they need it uh, 
badly right now. And, and other parts of the world are going to be in energy de- deficits for some time. <clears throat> we have to actually figure out a way to manage Wall Street where we're not punishing companies for making investments in projects that are critical, particularly when they're projects that are aiding the green transition as opposed to from fossil fuel companies. So I think we have to get the right alignment of things so that we're not doing this giddy up woe approach to do we want we want fossil fuels now we need them now we don't we don't want them and all that. I think we still have supply chain bottlenecks and some of that goes back to the steel tariffs. You know, the green energy transition, energy production, transportation refining all require lots of steel. When you get to wind towers and the like, very heavy on steel and then we're going to have to get the commodity areas squared away so we can get the electrification and get our grid system reestablished and, and modernized in a way we need it. That requires eliminating the bottlenecks that we're seeing. <clears throat> so those are these are some of the main issues. We have to protect the, the technologies that we have. That's ongoing. Um, we have to figure out the right tax policies and incentive policies. We get we go from highly incentive to highly punitive and we don't manage the in-betweens very well. We have to get production uh, permitting squared away, and we have to develop a new workforce for those areas. These are nice things to say. How do we get government to do that? Um, I think we have to have a different mindset that's going to require um, a significantly different approach. This is what we have been doing. Um, we restrict the production of one of our best uh, and most abundant resources we're killing projects off that are require, essential to moving us forward. We have constantly changing regulatory guidelines and uncertainties, and we're now proposing new tax taxes, windfall taxes on these guys, which isn't the way you take money and reinvest it very well by moving it from the private to the public sector. I think we have to find better incentives to affect the energy transition that we're making and we're a long way from that here. And, and all this is going on where the U.S. is in much better position than many other areas of the rest of the world are, like Europe. And how do we help them affect this transition? It's got to be a, a very different mindset than we've had. So for ARS, we think we need to throw away the old playbook. In the past, the way you dealt with high energy prices and high commodity prices was you had high prices, people overproduced, and then prices came down. In this environment, we're penalizing investors for growth at, rather than return to share, return to capital to shareholders. So they're not investing in the growth. So the, high, the higher prices aren't a cure for higher prices because they're not expanding their production. And now they're going to get penalized for expanding their production if we start putting greater windfall taxes on. So I think there's some real conflicts in how we're approaching this. To us, that means oil and gas prices are going to stay well above levels. Well, at the same time, their cost of production is coming down. So that actually is going to give them more profits, which um, if we support them, we can invest in the green transition. But we can't keep putting conflicting policies out. We need a bipartisan long-term plan. We can't go election cycle to election cycle. And that's not four years. It's two years now. And we have to take the ideology out of it and keep it as what the goal is. But we have to have practical solutions involving the major players in the energy space. That's companies, that's government, and that's the producers themselves. But we do believe there are big opportunities available right now for people to take advantage of. This is one of the areas that is going to have probably some of the most positive returns over the next 12 months. Um, We've had a bit of a pullback in oil uh, last week, 
but we think this is still a very strong area to invest in, and you want to be investing in both sides that are going to help this transition go through properly. So, Mark, I'm going to stop it there, and we can open up to questions, comments. Absolutely. You talked about energy, Chris White. I haven't seen you for a while. You're probably busy uh, helping us helping us on the supply side. But you're muted. Dangerously close to that beer that you all owe us, Chris. And Mark, while Chris is coming on, the one thing I forgot is Exxon also sent a letter last week. And one of their highlights, which I forgot to mention, is we need to uh, waive the Jones Act to allow the shipping of uh, energy to move differently than it has been. And I'm not an expert on the Jones Act, so I would just say that that is proposed by Exxon as one of the things that can break the logjam on the near term as well. Part of it. Hey, Chris. Mark, we got a little public offering off on our Brazilian subsidiary. Okay. Uh, which is why I didn't make your Ohio gig. And, uh, you know. Excusable. Um, with, got off, let's see, a week, priced a week ago today, actually. So, um, you know, Brazil is a difficult equity market to sell things into because it's a very thin market and, uh, it's, uh, it's either kind of open or, sh or closed. And, uh, we had a sort of a difficult period coming up on the Fed meeting and so forth, but we got it off at a reasonable price and I am relatively happy with it raised another couple of hundred million dollars into that company. That's great. That's I'm great. pleased with that. Yeah. Well, any, any thoughts just on the general market dynamics on what Steve was talking about? Well, there, you know, there's a couple things that everybody needs to keep in mind. Here, uh, because in the end, uh, everybody in the business knows this and people don't talk about it, right? The, the, the first thing is the historical returns on capital. If you measure that in an accounting sense, or if you measure that in distributions to shareholders in the upstream business are low compared to Almost all the other businesses that you want to count, they would be in the bottom quartile of total businesses here that are listed for listed companies. So, um, so that's the history here. And believe me, everybody in the business knows it. Um, nobody outside the business ever says it, but that's how it is. So. Second, the only way to ameliorate that and do better than the industry averages is to take money off the table when you have high prices. You can't take money off the table when you got low prices. You have to take it off the table when you have high prices. Okay, guys, we got high prices right now. So it's all well and good to say, okay, invest in growth and do, okay. These companies all have shareholders. Maybe you guys own some of them. 
I think what Stephen was trying to say, maybe they should have incentives. They got to do what's right for those shareholders. If there's a way to have a win-win, is that your part of your point, Stephen? Well, I think the government's penalizing companies at the time they should be working with them to affect a transition, not put them in the your bed and this is good. When they're the most knowledge, they have the best research. They've had the history of of providing energy to the country. They need to be engaged in a different way than they are and not not put in a vilified and made the enemy. I think that's one of the key. Well, that, in, indeed, let's let's take a you know let's take the European natural gas or uh, LNG situation here on the get go. What can be done to reduce the permitting cycle here for LNG export? This is something which is clearly in our interest. This is something which uh, clearly is in the interest of our. Uh, NATO allies. This is something which uh, clearly reduces Russia's leverage over Europe. This makes all the sense in the world from however, whatever perspective that you want to look at. And, you know, you don't have to subsidize it. It'll happen. It'll happen. Uh, the government doesn't have to pay for it with tax policies. There's no, you know, all you have to do is shorten the permit cycle here. It's a relatively easy thing to do. Or it should be a relatively easy thing to do. It's interesting. Uh, do you have a take on uh, him talking about take, taking his company private? Because it speaks well, to what being a public company is like in the world we live in today. Um, you know, I, I've been in private companies my whole life, Stephen, and I have nothing good to say about the experience of being public, except that it gives you access to a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. I, I have sat on a, a number of public boards over the last 40 years, and uh, it's been corrosive for the chief executive officers. They spend all this time talking to analysts, and the analysts all are spouting the same thing. It's the the opinion of the moment. It's been uh, sort of... I, I. I like to call it the blanderizer. All the opinions go together and they get all chopped up and out comes a bland consensus opinion. And all the analysts feed you that. If you want your stock to perform, you should do this. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's not. But, but if you spell all this time talking to these people, you get pounded in that direction and you lose the ability to actually think. So I I don't it's a very difficult thing to run a public company in, in my opinion. You It makes you uh, beholden to all these people who are more than happy to tell you what you should think. Well, let, let's uh, just 
open it up a little more. I take I actually I was in a meeting with you or you were told by some of your board members, let's go public, but we'll we'll pause on that. I, I remembered your actions then. Um anyone else on on the themes that, that Stephen hit upon or in general how we're seeing today's markets? Hi, Safa. I just joined in, so I may be behind, but it's interesting to, in terms of what uh, Chris and Stephen were talking about that I was reading yesterday. Germany is uh, restarting some of its coal plants, so they basically would increase their coal production by three times. It is unfortunate, in my view, that they can't restart their nuclear plants, because to me, that's really the way for us out of this dependence not only on oil and gas, but also in Russia. So I just wanted to share that. that. That's a great, that's a perfect example of the impractical way we're approaching the energy transition. They forced the shutdown of their remaining nuclear plants yeah. in the face of a of an energy crisis. And you can't, you just but, can't run a country that way. But, yeah. but we can, we can all say what it could have, should have, you know, it happened. Um, and they also almost commissioned the second pipeline to, to Russia, but they are where they are, right? And it's just interesting. I think I think everyone. The, your point was we got to throw out the old playbook. Yep. Now I think they should reintroduce nuclear, but that's not a switch overnight. Sure. Oh, do one third or twice. Other thoughts? On that issue, Mark, we have the same problem here in the United States with refineries. You know, refineries are large-scale facilities. When they draw down in an energy transition, they will be in chunks. And if we don't have, I think, a sustainable or, or a realistic, practical energy policy that, that enables that transition, I think we're going to have chaotic gas market prices and uh, rather than a stable transition. Yeah. Anyone want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I would absolutely emphasize that. And, you know, Stephen, I think if you if you go back to the chart that you had early in your presentation that showed kind of the, the green gray bar transition. Yeah, there you know, this is this is a reality that I think a lot of the policymakers just don't want to accept, at least my, my opinion, because it's going to take a while. I mean, I've. I've, I worked in alternative energy back in the 70s, and not a whole lot of it has changed. You know, I, I look what we were doing back then, and I look what's going on now. And it, they're tough technical problems to solve, and we've, we've probably talked about this before. But I think the manage, the whole idea about managing a transition is probably lost mm-hmm. on, on the policymakers. And I think I think the rhetoric. And the um, policy imperatives that were put forward is like we're gonna, you know, we need to do this like tomorrow, and and it's not gonna happen tomorrow. So I I think a, a meet, the meeting of the minds has got to be an acceptance of reality in terms of if if this is the direction that we want to go, it's gonna take time. And uh, probably reiterating your point, Stephen, it's it's got it's got to be managed on both sides. We have to manage the green side. We've got to manage the oil and gas side. Yep. But, you know, for goodness sakes, uh, we are, we are, we are witnessing, um, 
the, the, the adverse consequences in, you know, every day of, of not doing this correctly and, and punishing the, uh, the industry that we really need right now, not only for economics, but for national security. Yeah, I was going to say Hamlet could speak to this, but we also have a grid system that is as vulnerable as you could have that needs a complete revamping to reflect a fossil fuel and alternative energy setup that has to have a much higher level of security or we're going to get, uh, they'll be able to, any foreigner, foreign uh, uh, nation would be able to take us down very quickly if we don't fix that part of it too. So we have security issues around around this that we need to address as well. Yeah, not only transitioning off, Stephen, off of off of fossil fuels in the in the things the market policies that need to make that a, a smooth and stable transition rather than disruptive and chaotic, but also just the distribution of electric power is an emerging problem. Almost every uh, almost every transmission line project that's been proposed and people have attempted to permit in the past 10 years has been abandoned because of the bureaucratic delays, regulatory delays.